Good morning. His mercy is more. Amen. We're going to see that in our passage today. I would encourage you to open up your Bibles to 2 Samuel chapter 12. We're continuing our series, The King That We Need. Oh, how indeed we need our King Jesus. Again, we're in chapter 12 of 2 Samuel. We'll see that this passage picks up really right after where we left off last week, David's sin with Bathsheba and murder of Uriah. So we'll be picking right up here in chapter 12. It's our practice here, as many of you know, to remind ourselves before we open and read the scriptures and hear from God's word about what the scriptures are and to pray, really, to say this is a prayer together um, of asking God for him to work through the Spirit in our lives. And so let's say this affirmation together. Our pursuit is, by the power of the Holy Spirit, to be a biblically functioning community. We will not shy away from the Word of God. We will embrace it as truth, no matter how painful it is to our souls or how countercultural it is to our souls. We will follow the King into eternity. Please follow along with me as I read uh, chapter 12, verses 1 through 25. The scripture should be on the screen, but you're always encouraged to follow along in front of you as well. And the Lord sent Nathan to David. He came to him and said to him, There are two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought. And he brought it up, and it grew up with him and with his children. He used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms, and it was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guests who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man, and he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die, and he shall restore the lamb fourfold, because he did this thing and because he had no pity. Nathan said to David, You are the man. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you out of the hand of Saul. And I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms. And I gave you the house of Israel and of Judah. And if this were too little, I would add to you as much more. Why have you despised the word of the Lord? To do what is evil in his sight. You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword, and have taken his wife to be your wife, and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house, because you have despised me, and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord Behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house. 
and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor, and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of the sun. For you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the sun. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, The Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. Nevertheless, because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord, the child who is born to you shall die. Then Nathan went to his house. And the Lord afflicted the child that Uriah's wife bore to David, and he became sick. David therefore sought God on behalf of the child, and David fasted and went in and lay all night on the ground. And the elders of his house stood beside him to raise him from the ground, but he would not, nor did he, nor did he eat food with them. On the seventh day, the child died, and the servants of David were afraid to tell him that the child was dead. For they said, Behold, while the child was yet alive, we spoke to him, and he did not listen to us. How then can we say to him, The child is dead? He may do himself some harm. When David saw that his servants were whispering together, David understood that the child was dead. And David said to his servants, Is the child dead? They said, He is dead. Then David arose from the earth and washed and anointed himself and changed his clothes and he went into the house of the Lord and worshiped. He then went to his own house. And when he asked, they set food before him, and he ate. Then his servant said to him, What is this thing that you have done? You fasted and wept for the child while he was alive. But when the child died, you arose and ate food. He said, While the child was still alive, I fasted and wept. For I said, Who knows where the Lord will be gracious to me that the child may live. But now he is dead. Why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I shall go to him, but he will not return to me. Then David comforted his wife Bathsheba and went into her and lay with her. And she bore a son, and he called his name Solomon. And the Lord loved him and sent a message by Nathan the prophet. So he called his name Jedidiah because of the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, this is a heavy passage. Sin is real. It was real in David's life. It is real, unfortunately, in our lives. Help us to feel the seriousness and the weight and the gravity of it as we unfold this passage. Help us, though, in this passage to see that indeed your love and your mercy is more. And this passage, I believe, displays that. Help us to see it and to be changed by your mercy and love and to desire you more and to desire a life of holiness more. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you happen to take a look at the bulletin, and you should look at your bulletins, read them. There are some good announcements in there. But if you happen to take a look 
you may have noticed that today's message is entitled, The Lord's Immeasurable Overcoming Covenant-Keeping Love. You might be thinking, what? How is this passage that we just read, in which David is severely disciplined, and there are great consequences to sin, how is this passage about God's love? That's a good question, and I hope that the Lord, through His Spirit, will help us to see that today. It's been my conclusion as I've studied this passage, is that we indeed, though we see consequences, though we see great sin, that we see, above all, God's covenant-keeping love. We have to remember where this passage is in the Scriptures. It's only five chapters after the Lord makes a gracious covenant with David and David's offspring, that he would raise up David's offspring after him and establish his kingdom. The Lord promises that David's offspring will build a house for the name of the Lord, and that the Lord will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. The Lord promises that his steadfast love will not depart from David's offspring, and that his kingdom would be made sure forever before the Lord. Again, that was in chapter 7. Now we're in chapter 12, not that many chapters later. But we see that these, these gracious, loving, astounding promises are put to the test. Not just by the later kings of Judah that were idolatrous and wayward. If you continue reading through 1 Kings, 2 Kings, you'll see that. No, these promises are severely tested almost immediately by David himself, the king, after God's own heart. Last week, Craig unfolded David's heinous sin. David lusted, he coveted, he stole, he committed adultery, he murdered. In the process, he manipulated, lied, abused his power, and sought to cover it all up. And for a time, he seemed to get off scot-free. The last sentence in chapter 11 told us, but the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. Even before our passage begins, huge questions are looming. What will the Lord do? We know what David deserves, but what will be the outcome of these great promises that the Lord has made to David and to his offspring, to us? Again, the promises the Lord made weren't just for David and his offspring. They were redemptive promises made for us as well, that we would have Christ, our King, forever. The Lord's response to David here matters not only for David and his offspring, it matters for us. I hope that you can feel the drama in this passage about how the Lord would respond. I hope that you can sense the tension. We can cut it with a knife, right? If we're just understanding this for the first time, what will God do? And again, it's only redemption that's hanging in the balance. How will God be both faithful to His righteous, holy character and also be true to His covenant promises? This is the backdrop for our passage today. These are the questions on the table for us. In light of this, we do see in our passage the immeasurable overcoming 
covenant-keeping love of God on display. Although our sin brings great judgment and consequence, we should be hopeful in repentance because of His amazing covenant-keeping love. And we need this passage today because it is our tendency to doubt the willingness of God to truly, completely forgive us and reconcile us to Himself. Even many of us that have journeyed with Christ for some time, we still either daily or weekly struggle with God's forgiveness, or maybe there is a past sin that has been many years removed, but it still continues to haunt us. Does God completely forgive sin? The Lord's forgiveness of David and his grotesque sin should convince us that we too, who cry out in genuine repentance and faith in Christ, are most assuredly fully forgiven and reconciled to God. We often know this in our head, but we struggle to, to, to truly embrace it in our hearts. We tend to think that God is like us. We usually struggle to forgive others and move on, and we can sometimes cast this notion upon God. John Calvin said, There is nothing that troubles our consciences more than when we think that God is like ourselves. Good news. He's not like us. Very good news. The well-known and often quoted Isaiah 55, 8 and 9 tells us, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. We often quote this verse that you've, many of you have probably heard when something hard or difficult happens and we must trust the Lord's bitter providence. We'll say His thoughts are not our thoughts. And that is true, but as Dane Ortland reminded us in our Sunday school class last fall, if you're a part of that, this is a statement not of the surprise of God's mysterious providence, but of the surprise of God's compassionate heart. The context of the verse that I read from Isaiah 55 is the Lord's unimaginable compassion in light of His people's sin. We need to be convinced over and over again of the immeasurable, overcoming, covenant-keeping love of our God. Or as the Jesus Storybook Bible puts it, the never-stopping, never-giving-up, unbreaking, always-and-forever love. We see this love, this amazing covenant-keeping love in this passage, and we observe three things about it. First, God's covenant-keeping love means confrontational initiative. Confrontational initiative. We read in verse 1, and the Lord sent Nathan to David. David's heart was hardened and calloused by sin. David, at least externally, was carrying on his merry way. We can understand from what we read in Psalm 51 that on the inside, as any true believer who continues in unrepentant sin, his bones were wasting away. But on the outside, again, carrying along on his merry way. And as that is the power of the web of sin and self-deception. David was the man after God's own heart, yet 
here he is entangled and enslaved by sin. Thankfully, God is rich in mercy. And because of his great love, he sends Nathan to David. God didn't have to. He took the initiative here. Because of his rich mercy and his great love, he sent Nathan to David. And the Lord takes a surgical knife to David's heart. A knife that will wound, but a knife that will heal and restore. Had Nathan just plainly told David of his great sin and need for repentance in a straightforward matter, his heart likely would have remained calloused and resistant. Instead, Nathan describes a simple yet powerful picture for Nathan. It's no coincidence that Nathan uses the medium of a shepherd and a little ewe lamb. David, as we remember, grew up as a shepherd boy. The picture we have had of David, at least up until recently, with this incident, the picture we had was of a tender-hearted person. Perhaps David even had a favorite ewe lamb when he was growing up. We don't know for sure, but it's a reasonable possibility. David might have even named some of them or remembered specific ones that he had affection for. This one little ewe lamb, was, it was like a family pet. It grew up with a poor man and his children. It used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms. It was like a daughter to him, we're told. And this phrase, it was like a daughter to him, it points to the affection that we know that we can have for animals, right? Animals are animals. They're not made in God's image. And there's no scriptural support of them having eternal souls. But we can grow to have real love and affection for them. This man had such affection for this one little ewe lamb, this family pet. It was like a daughter to him. And the rich man with very many flocks and herds just takes it and slaughters it with no regard for the poor man or his family. You probably don't want to, but maybe it'd be helpful to imagine someone just taking your beloved family pet and just slaughtering it with no regard. Heinous, right? Devastating. Infuriating. Absolutely. Absolutely. When I was in late elementary or early middle school, I had wanted a dog so badly for some time. My parents finally gave in, wore him down, I guess, or they got tired of hearing me. I don't know. And I got her for Christmas, and I had only had her for several months. While I was away at camp, unfortunately, she got into antifreeze or something else. And she had to be put down right as I got back from camp. She was precious to me. It was pretty devastating at the time. David felt the devastation that the poor man certainly felt, and he was outraged. Verse 5 tells us his anger was greatly kindled. Even more literally, from the Hebrew, David became hot. He exclaimed, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. And he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing, because he had no pity. The law, Exodus 22.1, did require that the lamb be restored fourfold, 
but it didn't require the rich man's death. David is so furious, he adds that on, this man deserves to die. And then the Lord makes the healing cut with the surgical knife. As Nathan says to David, you are the man. The scalpel, that surgical knife, got right where it needed to. No person is too sinful, no heart is too hard or beyond reach for the immeasurable covenant-keeping love of our God that overcomes. His covenant-keeping love takes initiative and confronts. The Lord was not obligated to, but He came to Adam and Eve in the garden and said, where are you? Even though He knew. His covenant-keeping love sends the prophets again and again to Israel, His idolatrous, wayward people, calling them to stop being a harlot and come back to their true and faithful husband. And for those whom he has determined from before time to be his, he takes initiative towards and confronts. In many ways, this initiative, this confrontational initiative is the beginning of God's gracious dealing with us. In Ephesians 2, before coming to know Christ, it says that we are dead in the trespasses and sins in which we once walked following the course of this world. We were by nature children of wrath. But then, if you know that passage, what does Ephesians 2 say? But God, but God. Arguably the two greatest words in the Bible. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. He takes initiative and confronts us. He convinces us of our sin and misery and then gently, lovingly persuades us to embrace Jesus Christ who is freely offered to us in the gospel. The rich mercy and great love from which the Father sent the Son to redeem us is the same rich mercy and great love at work here that sends Nathan to David. And we are in continual need of His rich mercy and great love, not only for initially coming to Christ, but in our walk with Him. We are so prone to wonder, I am at least. How prone are our hearts to become calloused by sin or even cynical from life's hardships? How much do we need and what a great grace is it to have the Lord's intentional confrontation. What about when God confronts you by His Spirit? Do you recognize that as His grace? As David does here, it is often so easy for us to see someone else's sin, right? The, the speck in their eye while being blinded to our own sin, the log in our own eye. We need the church body. We need the Word. There are means that God lovingly confronts by His Spirit through the Word. Means by which He takes the surgical knife to bring healing. There is pain in the process, but the end result is life-giving, restorative, and beautiful. In some way today, it could be said of each of us, each of you, you are the man. We all have sin that we are blinded to. 
So I would encourage us, pray. Let's pray and invite the Lord to confront and take initiative with us today for our good and for His glory. So first, we have seen that God's covenant-keeping love means confrontational initiative. Now we see that it means discipline. His covenant-keeping love means discipline for His people. The Lord certainly loved David deeply, so He disciplined him. Hebrews 12, 6 tells us, For the Lord disciplines the one He loves and chastises every son whom He receives. Similarly, in a negative sense, Proverbs 13, 24 tells us, Whoever spares the rod hates his son, but the one who loves him is diligent to discipline him. Nathan doesn't even pause after saying, you are the man, but he keeps right on going. He first reminds David of the abundant blessing that God had given him. What God requires of us as His covenant people is always in relationship to His abundant grace. Right before He gives the Ten Commandments, the Lord says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. What He requires of us is always in response to His grace. We see this here as well with David. God had dealt so graciously with David he had anointed him king over Israel, delivered him from Saul. He had given him Saul's house and apparently his harem. He gave him the kingdoms of Israel and Judah and would have given him much more. Indeed, David was the rich man described in Nathan's story. How had David responded to the Lord's gracious dealing? How had he? Well, the Lord asked through Nathan, Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? Later it says, the Lord says, You've despised me. Verse 14 says that David scorned the Lord. So it lists three times that the same uh, descriptors are used, despised, scorned. David had treated God and his word as though they didn't matter, as insignificant or unimportant. Disregarding God's word or despising it is, this, is this the same thing as despising God himself. David's sin was grievous because of how it brought destruction to others, yes, but especially terrible because it was against the Lord himself. We know that David came to have an understanding of that, again, from what we read in Psalm 51, 4, against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. We will never take sin seriously unless we take God himself seriously. He's the creator, all-powerful, holy, and righteous. Our sin is serious in light of God's character and abundant grace that he showers upon us. The Lord disciplines David severely yet graciously. It's important, especially for this passage, that we briefly distinguish between discipline, consequence, and punishment. Uh, I looked up some helpful definitions that I think clarify this. Uh, discipline is a corrective action done to change the negative behavior of the offender. It is done for the benefit of the offender. 
consequences are the negative natural chain of events that occur because of poor choices and actions. These results are not done to someone. Rather, they are self-inflicted wounds resulting from personal choices. Punishment is a punitive action done to make the offender repay the debt they have incurred. So again, helpful to distinguish between discipline, consequences, and punishment for this passage. As a murderer and adulterer, the law required David's death. Deuteronomy 22 tells us that in the law. But the Lord spared David's life. The punishment was ultimately taken by Christ as David looked forward to the Lord's redemptive promises being fulfilled in a Redeemer. This is why Nathan is able to say to David, The Lord has put away your sin. You shall not die. That's what David deserved. He deserved death. David's punishment was taken. That the Lord put away David's sin should bring us great hope and encouragement. Our sins, they are many, as we have sung, but His mercy in Christ is more. Although our sin brings great judgment, Christ takes that punishment, that judgment for all who are united to Him through repentance and faith. So we should be hopeful in repentance because of the immeasurable, overcoming, covenant-keeping love of our God. But there are consequences to sin, and David is not removed from those consequences. The consequences of his sin are fitting, and in many ways a natural outworking of his own sin. David was a murderer. Verse 10 tells us that the sword will never depart from his house. David was an adulterer. Verse 11 tells us that the sin he did secretly will be public against him as a neighbor will publicly lie with his wives. After this point in 2 Samuel, most of the rest of the book, we will see these two aspects, violence and adultery, played out tragically in David's family. Sometimes the Lord shields us from consequences we should occur, incur, that does happen, but often He allows the natural consequences to unfold. Often the Lord's discipline of His people is allowing them to reap what they have sown. David's family members will choose to sin of their own will, of course, and they were responsible for their actions, yet also God used the natural consequences of David's sin as discipline toward David. David's family members certainly had an example, right, to follow, unfortunately, from David. And those were part of the consequences of David's sin, unfortunately. But David's response is telling. It is immediate, it is without denial, and it is without excuse. And this is a model for us. When we are convicted of sin and seek repentance, we should not deny or excuse our sin. We should fully own it, and then wholly trust in God's grace in Christ. And that's what David does. That's what David does. We see that he says, I have sinned against the Lord. And again, the, the Lord in that sentence is really important. We see Saul, long ago in many chapters, say, I have sinned. 
But if you go back, he doesn't say against the Lord. David knew of his sin against the Lord. So David is under discipline and consequences here, but his punishment is put upon Christ. None of us like discipline. No one does. But when it is from a loving father, it is for our good. Hebrews 12 tells us that if we're without discipline from the father, then we're actually illegitimate children and not sons. A mentor of mine once uh, told me that when he got older, he, looking back, he realized that he felt unloved, that his parents had very minimal boundaries for him in high school. He was a good kid, whatever that means, he said. So they basically just let him do what he wanted. But he told me that he had actually, looking back, he had craved their boundaries, their discipline as an expression of their love. We have our father's discipline. We have his love. Do you understand his discipline as an expression of his love? Do you receive it and learn from it? We often have painful, enduring consequences from our sin that the Lord does use as discipline in our lives. But this has purpose from the Lord. Psalm 119.67 says, Before I was afflicted, I went astray. Now I keep your word. It can be so painful to be afflicted in various ways, but how life-giving it is to keep God's Word. Obedience truly is the path to an enjoyable, flourishing life. Jacob encountered the Lord and walked with a limp for the rest of his life, but oh, did he know the Lord intimately. And he went from a deceiver to one who humbly clung to the Lord. David had enduring painful consequences that the Lord used as discipline. But we know from Psalm 51 and other places in Scripture that it led to a more humble, trusting, intimate walk with the Lord. Hebrews 12, 11 says, For the moment all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. So we've seen the Lord's covenant-keeping love means He takes initiative and confronts, and also that He disciplines His people in love. Now we see that His covenant-keeping love means He executes His sovereign, gracious will. That the child to be born to David and Bathsheba would die certainly cut David quite deeply, as we can imagine. All of us with loved ones, especially children, can easily imagine how difficult, how hard, how sorrowful that must have been for David. Verse 16 tells us that David sought God on behalf of the child. He fasted and went in, lay all night on the ground. He didn't rise from the ground at the elders prompting, nor did he eat food. He had thought, as it later says, who knows whether the Lord will be gracious to me. David cast himself completely on the Lord's mercy and grace. 
Although he received firm fatherly discipline and rightfully received the consequences of his actions, it didn't cause him to doubt the Lord's goodness, mercy, and grace. The Lord's discipline is from his loving heart, and the consequences of our actions are from our sin. That the child died on the seventh day was likely significant because it was on the eighth day that a son received the sign of covenant, which is circumcision. It likely would have been a painful reminder to David of his breaking of the covenant through his adultery and murder. In this instance, the Lord chose not to spare the child's life. Of course, this is hard for us to accept. But as we see in the text, David accepted it. He baffles his elders by arising, washing, anointing himself, and worshiping in the house of the Lord. David says in verse 23, Now he is dead. Why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I shall go to him. He will not return to me. Historically, theologians have pointed to this verse to affirm God's mercy and grace to those, whether infants or for other reasons, although they are sinners because all human beings are born into sin, but those who, for some reason or not, are not able to hear and respond to the word in faith. We know that David is expectant and hopeful in his eternal salvation, his own personal eternal salvation. And he says, I will go to him. There's reason to believe from this passage that David was hopeful and expectant to be with his son in eternity, in the presence of the Lord. And that's a good and gracious thing that this passage points to God's mercy and grace for those who are not able to hear and to respond to the gospel, whether an infant or whether unable for another reason. Although the death of David's son is terribly bitter, this passage ends with a note of hope, peace, and grace. Bathsheba allows her husband, who has brought so much pain and destruction, to come close and comfort her. They conceive again, and the son born is Solomon, which is derived in the Hebrew from shalom, which means peace. And yet again, the Lord graciously sends Nathan, this time not to confront, but apparently to express love and hope. We don't know Nathan's message because the text doesn't tell us here what his message was. But the result of Nathan's visit and the message is that Solomon is also nicknamed Jedidiah, which means beloved of the Lord. We do not earn God's favor through repentance. Being reconciled to God through repentance is still completely an act of God's mercy and grace. Nonetheless, God is pleased with genuine repentance. He's pleased with a a broken and contrite heart. The last word of this passage is peace and the love of God. The Lord uses the marriage of David and Bathsheba, which was initiated in sin, to bring about Solomon. Through Solomon, God's gracious promise of a forever king, a redeemer king, Jesus, would come to pass. One scholar says, 
While the book of Samuel emphasizes David's faith in contrast to Saul's foolishness, the fundamental distinction between the two kings pertains to God's choice of David and his house. Both were unworthy of God's kindness, but the Lord granted his everlasting favor to one and not the other. God's grace is abundant towards David and the covenant that he maintained with David and with us, even in spite of David's sin. The Lord is gracious to us through these promises given to David, not being broken because of David's sin, not being broken because of our sin, but continuing to be fulfilled because of our good and gracious King. Although much of this passage is bitter, the immeasurable, overcoming, covenant-keeping love of our God is on display. Although our sin brings great judgment and consequence, we should be hopeful in repentance because of His amazing covenant-keeping love. What He purposes in redemption and salvation, He will most surely bring about despite our great and grievous sin, despite our callousness and hardness of heart. So again, we saw that His covenant-keeping love means confrontational initiative. It means fatherly, loving discipline for His people. It means that He will execute His sovereign, gracious will. Again, that, that David's grievous sin did not annul the Lord's gracious covenant promise. His promise His promise that David's son, Jesus, would reign over his people forever displays the Lord's matchless love, immeasurable, overcoming, covenant-keeping love. Christ himself is the fulfillment of God's love for his people. For God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. He so loved terrible sinners like David. He so loved a terrible sinner like me. He has so loved a terrible sinner like you. In Christ, initiative was taken to confront and deal with sin forever just as the Lord graciously sent Nathan to David. So he graciously sent Jesus to confront sin. But unlike Nathan, Jesus himself was actually able to atone for sin. He put it away. He paid it all. He fully paid for David's adultery. He fully paid for our adultery, both our acts of adultery and our adulterous hearts. He fully paid for David's murder. He fully paid for our anger and our murderous hearts, for all of David's lying, deception, and abusive power, and ours, all fully paid for. He said, it is finished. The only reasonable response to such love is to grieve and hate our sin and turn from it, turn from it to God and then to strive for obedience motivated by love. Let's pray together.
Father, indeed, what love you have given to us, that we would be called children of God. Your love is too great for us to understand, but Lord, we see it in the scriptures, and Lord, we long to understand it more and more. We want to be in wonder and awe of your love, your covenant-keeping love, which doesn't exist. Your covenant doesn't exist for itself. Covenant is important because that commitment you have to us, but it exists. Your covenant-keeping love exists for the sake of intimate relationship that you would have with your people. Lord, we know of that intimate relationship, that personal relationship, that being known more deeply than we know ourselves, we know it because of your forgiveness of our sins. We are great sinners, greater than we know, and you forgive all of our sin, past, present, and future, through Christ through his life, death, and resurrection, even sin that we don't know about, and our hearts are so deceptive at times, so callous, even our best efforts are tainted by sin. And Lord, you forgive it all. This passage attests to that, Lord. How great is your love. We thank you that you take initiative and confront us. Thank you that you discipline us with your fatherly love and discipline. Thank you that you, in your covenant-keeping love, execute your gracious, sovereign will, which is for our salvation in Christ. Lord, help us too to be sensitive to sin and to name it, to own it, and bring it to the foot of the cross. We each are that man in different ways. Lord, help us to walk in humility and repentance, and then help us to ultimately rejoice in what a great salvation that we have, and live lives of grateful, humble worship because of what you've done for us in Christ. And and as we turn towards the Lord's Supper now, Lord, may this be the attitude of our hearts of conviction of sin, of repentance, and of great rejoicing in the work of Christ. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.